Good morning. Draw your attention to the bulletin. We're having a big party next week. Uh, we're having a big fellowship meal. We're going to celebrate a family really dear to us. And if you're not in on that, we want you to be in on that. We're going to share more details in our Bible class. And so if you are teaching, not going to be in a class today, see an elder or minister, because we definitely want you to be a part of that. Again, it's going to be a potluck meal, but if you notice, the meat will be provided. So that'll be a great help and want you to be a part of that so you can also show appreciation. And tonight we've got small group Bible studies. And not too late to join a group. And again, talk to an elder, talk to a minister person sitting next to you, and if they don't know, they can point you to an elder minister so we can get you in a group. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 5 for our message today. Outline is on the back of the bulletin if you want to follow along. You ever felt sick or just so bad when you're at work or at school and you just thought, if I could just go home and lay down for a while? You know, sometimes that's just like the best medicine. I could just go and lie down for a little bit, then that will do the trick. Well, that's what John Kenneth Gilbert experienced one day. He left work and he went home. Gilbert served as an advisor for several U.S. presidents, but on that day he was uh, serving under the term of Lyndon Johnson. So he went home, told his housekeeper that he was going to lie down for a little bit and did not want to be disturbed. Well, about an hour into his rest, the phone rang. The housekeeper quickly answered, it was LBJ. And he asked to speak with John. And the housekeeper said, I'm sorry, but he's not to be disturbed. And the president said, I don't think you understand. This is Lyndon Baines Johnson. I'm the, I'm the president of the United States. I need to speak to John now. And she very politely said, I'm sorry, sir, but I work for him and not you. And hung up. The next day, he was feeling better, was back at work, and ran into the president, and the president said, Johnny, I want your housekeeper to come work for me in the White House. Because <laughs> that's the kind of people you want working with you, under you, people who know who they are, and they know whose they are. Every commander-in-chief wants people to know that, and that's the case of the ultimate commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. Joshua chapter 5 is all about God reminding his people who they are and to whom they belong, whom they are serving. Let's look at Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 through 15, and see what we can learn today about what was happening with the people then. Verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening of the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of the Canaan that year. Verse 10. When thir verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am a commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face on the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. 
This section from Joshua chapter 5 helps us see how God is preparing his people to take the land. In our study of Joshua, we're learning what it means to take what God wants to give. For the people then, he wanted to give them the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And to us today, we've been promised by Jesus an abundant life. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So how does God prepare his people to receive what he wants to give? It may sound strange, but what I want us to see here in chapter 5, they eat their way to victory. Look at the first point. Eating the Passover reminded them that God is the deliverer. Verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. So take a step back for a moment and let's just kind of grab the big picture of what's going on. The children of Israel have miraculously crossed the Jordan River at flood stage. They're camped just outside Jericho, this fortified city, the, the big city. You know, as Jericho goes, so goes the whole nation, the whole land of Canaan. Last week, we studied about them being circumcised. Now they celebrate the Passover meal. Now, in chapter 2, a couple of chapters back, we've already studied where they sent the spies into Jericho. And now in chapter 5, they're in enemy territory. They're just outside Jericho. If you look at the map, when you cross over Jordan, I mean, right next to it is Jericho. That's where they are. So it's really the best time and place to observe the Passover? Yes, it is. And you know why? Because it's time. So on the 14th day, in fact, when do you celebrate Christmas? 25th day of December. When do the Jews celebrate Passover? The 14th day of the first month. That's where they are. It is time. And so God says to his people to observe the Passover. That day, that time, in fact, twilight or evening is the very moment when God delivered the children of Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt. So that is when they were to observe the Passover. Now, a little sideline on this. Some believe that this observing of the Passover was uh, a, a reinstating of the Passover meal. Like we studied circumcision last week, that not been happening in the wilderness. Some hold to the fact that the observing of the Passover had not been happening in the wilderness. So God was reinstating both of those. And while that may be true, that they were not observing the Passover during those 40 years, I could not find a verse that actually says that. In fact, commentaries disagree on this. But most that I read, most that I understood, think that those who perished, those who died in the wilderness, had refused to circumcise their children, but Moses might not have known about that. That was something that would be done in the home. That would be something that Moses would not necessarily be aware of. But there's no way that during this time Moses would have refused to observe the Passover. That was done in the family. That was done publicly. Everybody would have been aware and if you study the Torah before, you might even remember that one of the requirements of keeping the Passover was to be circumcised. And if you remember, when they were leaving Exodus, I mean, when they were uh, exiting Egypt, when they were leaving Egypt, it wasn't just the children of Israel. There were others, non-Jews, who also went with them. 
to the point where when he was given the law, those sojourners, those strangers, if they were going to observe the Passover with these Jews, they also had to be circumcised. So those two went together, and they all knew that. So think, what, think about what's happening here with these people that are now born in the wilderness. Most of them had not experienced leaving Egypt. They had not experienced the plagues. They didn't experience the parting of the Red Sea. And all the adults who did experience it, they died. That's their parents, their grandparents. They've all died in the wilderness. So of this, the people now, this generation... Only a few would have been children or, or teenagers going through all of that experience. And I thought about that, okay, how can we relate? It'd be like how many in their 40s and 50s, how much of us would we remember something 40 years ago? Probably depending on where we are in the age on that. I thought about that. I have two sisters and a brother, two boys and a girl. My sisters remember everything about their childhood. My brother and I remember nothing. And we get together, my brother and I are convinced they're just making it up. But they, maybe they're more right. But I thought that just kind of proves to me that people remember different things. But the bigger picture of this huge crowd now, this generation that's now alive, most of them did not experience it. And if they did, how much of that did they really remember? So what's amazing about this Passover in Joshua chapter 5 is now they can celebrate God as their deliverer. This is not just an amazing story that happened to my parents and grandparents. This is something that they experienced. They had just crossed over the river. God had been there for them. And in the upcoming chapters, we're going to see this again and again where God delivers them. The walls of Jericho fall down. The sun would stand still in Gibeon. God sends the hailstones down. I mean, it's, it's story after story, event after event where God delivers his people. So the Passover meal was calling them to celebrate God as their deliverer. They just crossed over into the land, and the victory, the land, it's as good as done, right? Or at least that's what Rahab thought. Do you remember Rahab's incredible words of faith? I know that the Lord has given you the land, Joshua 2, verse 8. So in observing the Passover, in a way, these people are... are are catching up with Rahab's faith. It's as good as done. God is giving us the land. God is the deliverer. And I appreciate so much Bryce's comments about communion this morning, reminding us on what we focus on. It makes all the difference. So in so many ways, the Passover meal did for them what communion does for us. We pause every week and we focus on God as my deliverer. He saved me from the slavery of sin and bondage. And he brings about our salvation through the Red Sea of Jesus' blood. He died for us. His blood was shed for us. Don't you think God will keep his promise for you and me to give us the abundant life Jesus talked about? Because in Joshua 5, they ate more than the Passover meal. We also read that they ate of the produce of the land. And that's the second point. Eating the produce reminded them that God is the promise keeper. 
And this is so key to this chapter, to the whole book of Joshua. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. The day after the Passover, on that very day, the ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. There's no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So the eat of the land and the manna stopped. Why does that matter? Why is that detail listed there? Remember how God sustained them in the wilderness? How he rained manna down from the sky? Miraculously, they had this food supply. They didn't have to worry about crops or where was I going to eat? Where's it coming from? Every day, they got just what they needed. And notice the, the timeline, the flow of, of events here. They enter the land. They taste. They eat of the land. And the manna stops. What does that tell us about God? What do we learn about God in this story? Of course, it's God's power to provide you and me, even today, everything we want, everything that we need. He has the ability, but his desire for us goes much more than just giving us our wants or even just giving us our needs. I want us to make sure we get this. God's goal is not just making our life easy or pleasant, or comfortable. That's not his number one goal. You know, we talk about studying the Bible all the time, studying the Bible all the time. The purpose we study the Bible is so that we can learn about God. Who is God? What's his character? What's his nature? What's he about? What do I need to know about him? And the Bible is full of fantastic stories, great wisdom, an amazing, wonderful advice about how to live the best life. But ultimately, the Bible is written so that you can know who God is. Who is God? And why should I believe in Him? Can I trust Him? See, if you view God as the one whose goal is to make your life good, to make your life easy then your theology will fail you. It's only a matter of time, and you'll be devastated spiritually because your view of God is thwarted. It's not based on Scripture. It's based on your own interpretation, maybe what somebody else told you or what you just assumed, but it's not based in Scripture. But there's a surprising number of people who view God in that way, but they're mistaking. God's providential working in your life it's for much more than your ease and your comfort. God provided manna for 40 years to sustain them. They needed it. They were in the wilderness. They needed some way to eat. He cared for his people, and he wanted to make sure that he could pro provide that promise, fulfill that promise. They had to stay alive. But now, after those who rebelled had died... And their God-fearing children are about to enter the land. They finally enter the land. The manna stops. Does that mean God stopped caring for them because the manna stopped falling? No, not at all. The manna was intended to get them into the land that was promised. It was a promised kept. Notice what is said in these verses. They ate of the produce of the land. And it specifies unleavened cakes and parched grain. 
So when they get to the land, they eat of the land. They eat unleavened cakes and parched or roasted grains, some translations say. What does that tell us? What does that imply? These cakes, this grain. The grain had to be picked. The grain had to be harvested. The grain had to be roasted. The bread had to be baked. Meaning there was some effort. There was some work involved. It wasn't just manna fell. They went out and ate it. Now there's an effort on their part. But did that mean that God had stopped providing for them? Again, not at all. See, the further you get along in your journey with God, the more you realize God is inviting you to partner with Him into His work. And you begin to see life that way. It's all about what He's doing. And you're partnering with Him. See, when they were in Egypt, they were slaves. They could do nothing for themselves. They had to work for their master. When God delivered them out of slavery, God did all the work. He sent the plagues. He sent Moses to deliver them. He parted the Red Sea. He did everything. And then in the wilderness, God provided the manna to keep his people alive. One author wrote this, the Israelites don't do jack squat. Kind of says it like it is, doesn't it? But now, in this land of promise, there's a shift. And I want to make sure that we get this, that we notice this, in the way God is relating to his people. This land that is promised them is as good as theirs. That's what Rahab said. Rahab believed it. But remember how he told them the premise to the promise. I will give you everywhere you set your foot. Do you remember that? I will give you everywhere you set your foot. God was saying to them, let's partner together in this taking of the land. They had to do something. It wasn't just going to fall from heaven like the manna had for 40 years. Jesus took the exact same approach with his disciples. And maybe one of those that we can't see the forest from the trees, but think about what you know of Jesus. When Jesus first came on the scene, Jesus does all the teaching. Jesus does all the miracles. And his disciples are just right there with him. And they're learning from him. And they're observing his miraculous powers. And then as you make your way through the gospel, you notice there's a shift. And now there is what sometimes you hear commentaries called the limited commission where he sends them out and they're teaching and they're performing some of the miracles, there's a shift. They're partnering with Jesus and bringing about the kingdom. And then when you get to the end of the Gospels, you get into the book of Acts. Remember how the book of Acts opens? Jesus ascends and he's given it all to his people, his followers. Look at this verse from Mark chapter 16. The very end of in fact, right after giving the Great Commission, notice how the Gospel of Mark ends. Since then, the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while, and get this phrase, while the Lord worked with them. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. It's a partnership. This has always been the way God relates with his people. Now, when you're young, when you're young in the faith, when you're immature and you don't quite understand everything, you mostly see God as the deliverer who is there for you when you get in trouble. God, help me. I blew it again. God, help me. I blew it again. 
Because you're young and you're immature, you're very childlike in your ways and in the way you look at God. But as you mature in your belief, as you grow to understand, your faith grows, your walk in God grows. You move past that view of God because you see what the Bible is teaching you, the right way to see God. You see Him working in you and through you. Or as it says here in Mark uh, 16, with you. So the degree to which you experience this abundant life Jesus promised is directly affected with how much you are partnering with God. This is not one of those when you said, I named the name of Jesus, I've been baptized, and you just expect it to fall like manna from the sky. No. It's the same premise we see here. God gives you everywhere you set your foot. How much are you partnering with God? The abundant life is greatly impacted by how much you partner with God. Where are you setting your foot? How are you walking by faith and not by sight? Have you grown in your faith to the level of Rahab, living boldly in the promises of your Messiah? So when you've reached that level of faith, here's what happens. You're not just seeing God more clearly, more accurately. You're also not thinking like the world. Our world is professional. They are professional complainers. And you and I can be too if we're thinking like the world. But when you see God in that way and you understand the bigger picture of what's going on, you're no longer complaining constantly about your dead-end job or how your family is holding your back or constantly complaining about how the church is not what it should be. Because that's not your focus. That's not what you're thinking. Your focus is on God and what He's doing. So instead, you've locked arms with the ultimate promise keeper, believing that He's going to keep His word. And you say to Him, let's go. And you're eager to follow. Your daily prayer becomes, Lord, work in me today. Show me what you want to do in me today. Let's work together to advance your kingdom. Your whole way of looking at life changes. So if you want to move beyond being a babe in Christ, you need to understand this concept of partnership that the Bible talks about. So notice what God is doing here in chapter 5. The children of Israel are in the land. They're picking the grain. They're roasting the grain. They're baking the bread. They're enjoying the food. And the manna stops. So before they conquer Jericho, remember Jericho, is that's kind of the, the, the pivotal city. So before they even conquer that pivotal city, first God gives them a taste of the land. Remember what we know about this land, what the Bible, how the Bible describes it? A land flowing, you remember, with milk and honey. And an expression to talk about how good it is, how fertile it is, how full of promise it is. It's not necessarily a literal translation like full of milk. But it just, it's talking about how it's going to be successful. It's a very agricultural term. But we get that, a land flowing of milk and honey. And he allows them to taste the land. It takes time to harvest the crops, to bake the bread, to roast the grain. Do you see God here is whetting their appetite? This is what you're going to get. You're going to get a whole, whole lot more of this. And he wanted them to appreciate the land that they would be fighting for. Because this is important. Getting to taste the land, getting to whet their appetite, 
that just makes you want it all the more. You ever been so hungry, you go into a restaurant and they bring you a little bag of chips or a little thing of bread and you're starving. It's all you can do to not just gobble it all up. Some of you do. I never do that. But we all know if you do, it kind of ruins, but, but you just take that one, you just smell the bread sometimes, or you just watch the server go by with the chips. You're like, hey, hey, hey. You, you, you just want it. Is that, what, is that what is happening here? This is important to see because there's a time when you and I need to taste the land, to have the experience so that you can know what it is you're living for, what it means to be in the kingdom, for you to share it with others. Let me give you some examples, kind of explain what I'm talking about here. I think of it like this. It's like when you start a, a new class in school and, and the experience you have when you ace the first test. Do you remember that? When you're thinking, oh, this is good. Or, or maybe it's in sports and you have that open, uh, that first game of the season and, and it's a resounding victory and you think, ah, th this is great. It's that kind of feeling, that kind of emphasis we're talking about here. That's what's going on. It's like when you go on a diet and you're exercising and you're working and you're working and you're working and the first month goes by and it's been hard work and you get on the scales. You take that measuring tape and you're going, victory. You taste it. You're off to a good start. You've got the momentum on your side and you think, ah, I can keep going. I can keep studying, I can keep playing hard, I can keep exercising, I can do what I need to do. That taste, that experience, it motivates you to want to keep going because you've tasted it. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, when he said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly in John 10.10. Friends, it doesn't mean you have to wait until you die and go to heaven and then you taste it. Not at all. God wants you to taste it here and now. Taste your salvation. Be sure of it. Marty led us in several songs that talked about that. What Jesus did for us. And we sing, acknowledging that. Taste his peace that passes all understanding. You taste his grace. You taste his mercy. You taste his goodness. Look at Psalm 34, verse 8. You know this verse. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist doesn't say you've got to wait until you get to heaven before you'll taste and see. It doesn't say that. In fact, it doesn't say read your Bible more and you'll see that God is good. It doesn't say pray more and you'll see that the Lord is good. It doesn't say come to worship more or, or come to a Bible class where someone can tell you how good God is. Although all of those can be effective in helping us to understand they're good but well, what the scripture is teaching here, taste and see that the Lord is good. Someone told me a couple of weeks ago, Southern Trey Restaurant downtown has the best burgers in town. Did you know that? It's a good friend of mine. And when I heard that, you know what I did? I believed him. No, I didn't. That very next week, C and I went to Southern Trade and we both had a hamburger. Why? Because I wanted to taste it for myself. And now I can talk about it because I've enjoyed it. Now, if I were to come to you and say, well, a good friend of mine said that Southern Trade has the best burgers in town. 
that carries no weight at all. But if somebody you trust says that, you're like, oh, maybe I need to taste as well. God wired us that way. That's what we're talking about here. Being a completely committed follower of Jesus means you're enjoying the abundant life that he promised. But understand, it's not just pleasant-sounding platitudes that you can put on a T-shirt or post online. It's much more than that. It's not just wishful, positive thinking. The premise to the promise, I'll give you every place you set your foot. You are partnering with God. You're walking with him. David said this in Psalm 119.10, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Folks, you never get away from this obedience. Jesus said so. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's where your partnering with God begins. You submit to his ways. You're following him. You taste and see that the Lord is good. And then you're going to be telling others. You can't help but tell others. Well, one more. Eating the dirt or eating dirt reminded them that God is their commander. I know, I just put eat dirt on there. You know, the English language is not lacking in awkward phrases if you take them at face value. But we all understand the meaning of words like eat dirt or eat crow or or, um, humble pie. We know what those mean. And we're not talking about food. On all of those, the only thing swallowed is your pride. But look what happens here. Evidently, this man looked important, but not necessarily angelic. You know, often in Scripture, when somebody is experiencing the presence of an angel, they're afraid. You know, sometimes they fall down to worship, sometimes they step back. But you read again and again, the very presence of an angel was awe-inspiring, fear-inducing. You don't get that picture here. There's nothing in the text that describes him other than his appearance as a man, and having a sword. Look at verse 13 and 15 again. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? This encounter is so rich, and we can have a whole message on just this point. But here's what I want us to grab real quickly. Joshua's question seems to be legit, doesn't it? When you read it, I mean, for sure it reveals his thinking. He's the leader. He's the commander of the the army. So he encounters this man bearing a sword drawn in his hand. And the question seems to be the right one. Are you for us or for our adversaries? I need to know. Whose side are you on? Keep reading verse 14. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and, and worshiped. And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Last week we briefly talked about this passage and how obviously there's more going on than just a human eye can see. And to me this is one of those passages that when I read, it leaves me with more questions than answers don't have all the answers. I have a lot of questions about this, but we can still learn. In fact, we can learn something very fundamental from this very brief exchange. In a nutshell, it's this. We do not ask God to be 
on our side. We do not ask God to be on our side. But that's the question here, isn't it? Isn't it what he was asking? The question should be, who is on the Lord's side? Who's going to follow him? When you realize God is my deliverer, God is my promise keeper, God is my commander, you simply respond, what does the Lord require of his servant? Here's a quick test, really more of a quiz. Hope you kind of see where you are on this. If your prayer life is still mostly filled with requests for God, God, get me out of this mess. God, make my life easy and comfortable and pleasant. God, bless my plans. You're asking the wrong things of God. God's goal is not to help you get, fight your battles. I just thought of this weekend, too late to put the video up there, but have you seen the video of this huge sheep that is wedged in the crevice? Have you seen this? Just, just YouTube, just sheep stuck in the crevice, and I'm sure it'll come up. And, and, and so the shepherd is trying to pull this sheep out, and he's struggling and struggling. Some of, have you seen it? You know what I'm talking about? And he, he finally gets the sheep out, and he runs off, and he takes a leap, and he goes right back down in the crevice. And you just think, that's us, y'all. God's goal is not to, again, pull us out of the crevice because he knows we're going to jump right back in. God's goal for us is much bigger than just fighting our battles. God's goal is for you to choose to be on his side, to look at what the Bible teaches about who God is. And it's not for you to just ask God, to, hey, God, help me again. It's to say, God, I want to be on your side. I want to do what work with me, through me, to advance your kingdom. You remember, Jesus dealt with this again and again and again. Remember the guy that came up to him and said, Lord, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Remember that? And Jesus said, oh, let me at it. No, he doesn't. He launches into a parable because the man obviously missed the point. Remember Martha going to Jesus saying, Jesus, tell Mary to come help me. Is that not what we're talking about here? Get on my side. Tell me how right I am and make my way happen, Lord. Jesus doesn't play that game ever. God's never played that game. God is for you. Do you know that? God is for you. But he is not your puppet. God is for you, but he is not your puppet. God knows that if he helps you in a battle, you're going to get into another one. What God wants for you is to put him first. Remember the greatest command? Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? Remember his answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what we're talking about here. God wants to realize what a mess we make of things when we do things in our own way. When we set the agenda and then ask God to bless it. When we live in our own power. Because in my own power, 
I am, I am no match for the River Jordan at flood stage. I am no match for Jericho. In my own power, I am, in no, I, I am no match for greed or lust or pride or gossip or lying. And the list goes on and on. But in Jesus Christ, I am more than conqueror. If God is for us, who can be against us? When you're on your face before the Lord, your own will, your own power becomes nothing. But in Christ, you can have the abundant life now. He's your deliverer. He's your promise keeper. And he's your commander. Or is he? If you've never named the name of Jesus, acknowledging that he is the Son of God and he came to save you, if you've never had your sins washed away, you've never joined the Lord's armor, you've never acknowledged that you are on the Lord's side. So this morning we offer that invitation for you to be baptized into Christ. For the King of Kings, as that line in that song we just sang, that King of Kings will make you his own. Or if we can pray for you to grow in your faith, to understand who God is, that he's for us, but he's not our puppet. Or if there's anything we can pray to help you with, once you come as we stand and sing to encourage. The Lord lift his countenance upon